WGN FM Ann Arbor. If you'd like to contact the sports department, please email us at sports at WCBN.org or call the station at 734-763-3500. Pass comes forward. Here's Hensick. Now to Kaloric. He's behind the defense. He's in. Shot and score. Chad Kaloric out of the penalty box gives the Wolverines a 4-0 lead. Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley, and uh, I'm assuming Jim Dwyer will be joining us momentarily, maybe caught up in traffic. In any event, I'm sure by the end of the week there will be naked radio going on down here in the studio of uh, our temporary studio here at WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It's awfully toasty. Well, all kinds of uh, interesting things happened last week. Um, I'll talk briefly about the Ann Arbor Film Fest in due course, uh, assuming that Jim shows up. I guess maybe I'll just start off, since the sports guys just got done, about the Final Four. This might be one of the best Final Fours ever. Uh, each team has got several ball players that are going to be first-round draft picks, and anybody can win it. So, uh, boy, if you want to see some... I, I college basketball maybe at its best in quite some time in terms of the Final Four. Uh, tune into the games this weekend because they are all top notch, and it could just come down to officiating injuries, loose balls. Who knows? Uh, but it should be top notch basketball. In any event, uh, the Ann Arbor Film Festival occurred all last week, and uh, needless to say, I think the best film that I saw last week was actually Bush at War, the uh, frontline uh, two-part special, each uh, two-and-a-half-hour uh, segments. It was just absolutely superb. Uh, this took uh, basically books, uh, previous documentaries that Frontline had done about these issues, and sort of compressed it into kind of two parts, one the uh, so-called so war on terror and then the uh, war uh, with Iraq. And uh, when you see the, um, shall we say, the autopsy, <laughs> I think which is an appropriate uh, description to use about uh, this amazing body count that keeps rising uh, and the events that, of course, we've seen in uh, Iraq just this past week, uh, you get more and more details about the folly of the policy. Uh, what I find as troubling as anything is the development of a deliberate torture policy that was approved by the highest uh, officials in our government, including Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, uh, with acquiescence by George Bush and Condoleezza Rice. Uh, I think these people uh, should at some point be tried as international war criminals, um, and I think that there are comp people complicit in the, quote, Department of Justice. Uh, one of the most troubling things, and uh, we've talked about this before on Gray Matters, is the development of a torture policy uh, using the Office of Legal Counsel in which uh, essential, essentially judicial lackeys of President Bush and Dick Cheney were uh, used to develop a torture policy that emanated essentially from the development of a constitutional theory that because we're at war, the president can do whatever he wants. This was developed by an assistant in the Justice Department named John Yu, who teaches law 
amazingly enough, yeah. at the University of California at Berkeley. And, of course, was expanded upon and uh, acquiesced to and developed as a executive power principle by David Addington, who was Dick Cheney's uh, legal man, and uh, Alberto Gonzalez, uh, who we've found out uh, over the years is uh, nicknamed Fredo. I seem to recall that Fredo is a figure in The Godfather who uh, is a toady for the mafia. <laughs> Weak, mentally and spiritually. <laughs> yes. Um, so this is very troubling, and to make it even more troubling, several of the suspects that were tortured, uh, some of them were uh, put under this thing called extraordinary rendition, were sent to countries like Syria and Egypt for torture sessions, and then the contents of their what they had confessed to was then used to develop a theory about Iraq and connections with, quote, al-Qaeda and the weapons of mass destruction which, of course, became the centerpiece, two of the intellectual centerpieces for why we went to war with Iraq. This is absolutely incredible. If you think about it, if you actually contemplate that the American government justifying torture, using the contents of torture sessions, and, of course, this uh, infamous guy named Curveball that was... Uh, never uh, interrogated by anybody at the CIA or the FBI, and who the Germans said was unreliable. His, the contents of his, uh, quote, interrogations were also used to justify this, this sort of uh, linkage between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda, which, of course, never existed, and the weapons of mass destruction uh, policy was also developed uh, using... Uh, questionable sources that were connected to Ahmed Chalabi. And, of course, the neoconservatives were pushing Chalabi as a sort of rump leader of Iraq uh, once we took over the place. And uh, the consequences well, he, have been devastating. Yeah, he claimed to uh, be representative of the government in exile. And, of course, he hadn't been in Iraq himself for over a decade, nearly two decades, yeah. in fact. Um and, you know, Jomsky has written and spoken extensively on what he describes as a policy which is illegal but legitimate, a seeming paradox, but in fact that's w exactly what U.S. policy regarding Iraq uh, has been. Um, the United States flouting uh, or just ignoring international law is, of course, nothing new. Um, this happens on and off. Uh, certainly during the Reagan administration, it happened when the International Court of Justice found against the United States for mining the harbor mm -hmm. uh, of Nicaragua, clearly an illegal act, an act of war, without uh, declaration of such. But what the Bush administration has done is to simply erase international law. And when Alberto Gonzalez uh, rendered the opinion that the events in this post-9-11 world rendered the Geneva Conventions quaint. I mean, the writing was on the, the wall right there that law no longer applied, that law was not really, uh, it was going to be used as a smokescreen. Terminology like extraordinary rendition sounds like something you'd hear in a meat processing plant. Mm -hmm. And in effect, that's essentially what these torture chambers are, is meat processing plants. Um, the fact that uh, it still occurs and that it, it's been, you know, 
People have been uh, whisked away to uh, secret unknown chambers. Now, finally, there are some open calls from uh, some in Washington, uh, senators and congressmen who might previously not have said such a thing, to close down Guantanamo. Um, it's too little too late, I think, to make that call. But uh, finally, it, you know, it's good to hear it. Um, it's not likely to occur uh, until Bush and Cheney are at least out of office, if not in the dock. Yeah, and and to amplify on some of the, <clears throat> I don't know, the big observations that this Bush at War frontline documentary that I, as I say, cannot strongly recommend enough, um, just because it compresses so much uh, in so effectively. I would recommend an, an incredibly interesting article in the uh, April 3rd, 2008 edition of the New York Review of Books entitled Euphemism and American Violence uh, by David Bromwich. Um, of course, uh, it's interesting that he quotes George Orwell uh, in the context of this article regarding politics, his, his famous essay, uh, Politics in the English Language, in which Orwell writes, defenseless villages are bombarded from the air the inhabitants are driven into the countryside, the cattle machine-gunned, the hut set on fire with incendiary bullets. This is called pacification. Millions of peasants are robbed of their farms and sent trudging along the roads with no more than they can carry. This is called transfer of population or rectification of frontiers. People are imprisoned for years without trial or shot in the back of the neck, or sent to die in scurvy Arctic lumber camps. This is called elimination of unreliable elements. This phrageology is needed if one wants to name the things without calling up mental pictures of them. Bromwich writes, and that was a quote from Orwell's uh, Politics in the English Language that he wrote in the mid-40s, mm -hmm. that of course is almost a premonition of America's uh, policies in Indochina and uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Bromwich writes, Orwell's insight was that the italicized phrases, the ones that I sort of emphasized, like pacification and uh, transfer of population, are colorless by design and not by accident. He saw a deliberate method in the imprecision of texture. And he goes on to describe uh, in this article about how the Bush administration saw 9-11, the 9-11 attack, as, quote, an opportunity. Better to go massive, as Donald Rumsfeld noted on September 11th, quote, sweep it all up, things related and not, unquote. A similar sense of Bush's purpose has been recalled by Karl Rove, who said, quote, history has a funny way of deciding things, Rove said to an audience at uh, Penn State on the 20th of February 2008, quote, sometimes history sends you things, and 9-11 came our way. This is remarkable stuff. It's that, a disturbingly casual uh, yeah, convenience. That the global war on terror is perceived by the architects of the policy as an opportunity. Um, I'm not too sure what the opportunity is other than, of course, the quasi-fascist 
um, policies that have developed ever since. Uh, the suspension of habeas corpus is a very troubling thing. Uh, American legal scholars have pointed out that this concept originates back in the Magna Carta. Yeah, it's 1215. <laughs> uh, we're talking about concepts and ideas that precede the Spanish Inquisition and uh, are very troubling. They're middle-aged concepts uh, in terms of thinking about humanity. And this idea that these terrorists in uh, the Middle East and the Near East, quote-unquote, what used to be called the Near East, the Pakistan-Afghanistan region, mm -hmm. that there's something unique about these people as opposed to other terrorists that have lived before us, <laughs> including the terrorists that occupy uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue here in uh, the United States of America, um, is, is quaint. Well, it's also sad, I think, to note, too, that much uh, of what you read there from the Orwell excerpts uh, when he was writing in the late 40s, was initially intended to be directed towards not the United States, but the Soviet Union sure. and totalitarian communism. <clears throat> and in fact, I've, as I've stated for years now, that one of the side effects or consequences of the Cold War was that the United States became like its enemy. And uh, the Soviet Union is, of course, no more, as try as Putin might to... Uh, maintain uh, clout and stature uh, economically. I suppose he's got a chance there with uh, national uh, natural resources uh, manipulation. But uh, it doesn't look good for the United States when we have become uh, guilty of the crimes that Stalin's regime uh, perpetrated. Uh, the matter of degree uh, may be arguable. Um, certainly there are no gulags here at home. But uh, America's reputation... Uh, has taken a major hit, and uh, who knows how long it'll take to recover uh, our credibility. Uh, by the way, the um, PBS uh, Frontline program that uh, you're talking about there is available online. I've there just called go. it up here. Mm -hmm. You can even watch it on your computer. Just go to pbs.org and uh, click right on the uh, Watch the Full Program button. There you go. Uh, so uh, it's well worth it. I was so busy with the Ann Arbor Film sure. Festival that I didn't get a chance to see that. But... Um, so I've been uh, immersed in uh, culture. Uh, and I did actually want to mention a couple of films that I thought uh, a lot of good films as usual at the Ann Arbor Film Festival. And also as usual, a few personal disagreements with some of the judges' decisions. And I spoke with a couple of the judges. I've mm -hmm. managed to, to attend pretty much every day for a number of hours. And uh, I'm not sure how this is all decided, but some of the judges were actually in agreement with me on this one, uh, at least one that I spoke with, the best documentary film, um, a substantial cash prize, uh, was given to uh, Lauren Greenfeld's Kids Plus Money. An interesting film, but a fairly straightforward and conventional documentary about teenagers and uh, cash mm -hmm. and uh, concepts of money and so forth. Very interesting to note in that film that the, uh, the poor kids who had a harder time of it generally seemed to be happier and more clear-headed than the uh, the spoiled rich kids who were largely delusional and in some cases downright mentally ill. <laughs> um, a good film, but I thought a, a better documentary was uh, a film from Ecuador 
called La Curacion, The Healing. Uh, very interesting and beautifully done film about uh, a number of things, but uh, probably primarily the body as metaphor for the self and the uh, intersection of Western medicine and traditional healing mm -hmm. in, uh, amongst Native peoples uh, throughout the Americas. And uh, I found that to be a very powerful film, and uh, I, I hope that uh, it will become available in some uh, way, shape, or form. In the credits, there was a U of M connection. I was looking down, writing some notes, and as I looked up, I saw University of Michigan scroll up on the uh, screen. So I have a feeling that that is a film that will, uh, at some uh, future date, become available. It's called The Healing, La Curacion, and uh, strongly recommend that. Um, also, the Juche idea, a sort of a mockumentary, partial comedy, but also a very interesting analysis of uh, propaganda and um, aesthetic ideologies named after Kim Jong-il's writings on uh, the functions of a film ideology in a socialist dictatorship uh, such as North Korea. This was actually a, quite a funny film. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, purported to follow the uh, travails of a North Korean film student trying to make her own uh, ideological salute to Kim Jong-il's glorious regime, which, of course, is far from glorious. Uh, and amongst this uh, film, a 62-minute uh, film by a guy named Jim Finn, and it was given an honorable mention, so I, I do credit the jurors for that, um, were some actual excerpts from North Korean popular entertainment films uh, that were just remarkably absurd. And uh, that was a very uh, clever film. And it made you wonder about the propaganda systems that we are immersed in and that we subscribe to. And some of us, you know, kick against the pricks, uh, as the old British saying goes. But uh, And that's not pricks in the sense that you might think there. That's, mm -hmm. that's actually a wool-combing uh, expression if you trace the history of it. But uh, I would recommend the Juche idea, too. Uh, keep your eyes out for that one. One movie that I was uh, deeply moved by, by the way, that did win inter Best International Film was uh, Nijuman no Bore. Um, I missed that one, but heard it was, was very good. It, it, frankly, one of the most powerful things I've ever seen at the Ann Arbor Film wow. Festival. Um, because it showed... Um, literally thousands of images of a building that initially, because the movie was made in, in, uh, out of France that you thought was Paris, but it turned out to be Hiroshima. And the powerful images of the fact that this building survived the Hiroshima oh, bombing. I did see that one, yeah. The domed uh, building yeah, that you see in all the Ground Zero photos. Absolutely amazing stuff. And I recall that on the 50th anniversary of the Hiroshima bombing, I did a particularly, uh, well, a special show on gray matters back uh, those many years in 1995 about imagining the impact of Hiroshima in Ann Arbor. Uh, and if you'll bear with me, my I'm just <laughs> sort of recalling my uh, show from over a decade ago. Imagine the union as ground zero. Uh, if you draw a circle roughly from um, the Union to City Hall, down to Michigan Stadium, up to the Michigan Hospital, and say over to uh, uh, Alba, no, well, the, the uh, 
the women's sports facilities on State Street. Mm-hmm. That area, uh, the temperature was so hot, uh, 5,000 degrees, right. that concrete melted. It liquefied. And, of course, nothing survived. But the fact that this one building, which probably was... And it's never clear what exactly it was, but it was probably a religious shrine, I'm guessing, that did survive, and to see the redevelopment of Hiroshima. Yeah, it was a series of photographs that were, like, piled on top of each other, and you saw the construction of this building through the 30s and the 40s, and then the incredibly loud explosion and the white screen of the blast, and then the rebuilding through the 40s up into the 80s. Yeah, and the fact that, of course, they've got a Ground Zero memorial in Hiroshima. Very powerful stuff, and, of course, a very brief uh, photo of the total devastation Mm -hmm. um, near the building where literally the the entire area evaporated uh, into the atmosphere. Um, Of course, Japan, uh, after World War II, and this is in no way means or shape or form any sort of apology for the imperialistic and brutal policies of the Japanese government uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, They were imperialists. Uh, They killed an estimated 10 million people. The rape of Nanking is uh, no idle epithet. In China. um, uh, Terrible um, policies, terrible regime. Um, But the debate about Hiroshima you know, can still continue, um, given what we know and what we think we know about whether or not the the dropping of the bomb was, was necessary. But it's that profound alteration of Japanese culture that I think is so important. You know, they have this thing in Japan called Article 9. It's part of the Constitution uh, that was actually assisted by the American uh, occupation, in which war was made illegal, outlawed, um, rendered quaint, (laughs) perhaps. Um, And I I think that it would behoove all Americans to appreciate the metamorphosis that Japan has gone under. And it was very troubling just many, a couple of years ago under Fujimori when the Japanese government decided to technically violate Article 9 Mm -hmm. and began dispatching troops as, you know, a minor assistance uh, as part of the so-called coalition of the willing, another euphemism. And I think that the euphemisms employed by the Bush administration to justify these war policies are very troubling. Um, And as Bromwich notes in this New New York Review of Books article, he says, Americans are more susceptible, are Americans more susceptible to any Devices than other people. Democracy exists in a continuous complicity with euphemism. There are so many things. The staring facts of inequality, for example, about which we feel it is right not to speak gratingly. One result is a habit of of circumlocution that is at once adaptable and self-deceptive, quote, their own approbation of their own acts, wrote Edmund Burke, of the people in a democracy has, quote, to them the appearance of a public judgment in their favor, unquote, since the people are not always right, but our definition always in the majority, their self 
approbation, Burke added, tends to make them shameless and therefore fearless. The stratagems of a leader in a democracy include giving the people a name for everything, but doing so in a way that maintains their own approbation of their own acts. Thus a war the people trust their government to wage over which we have no control, but about which we would prefer to think happy thoughts, give us the widest possible scope to the exertions of euphemism. There has sprung up over the past five years a euphemistic contract between the executive branch and many journalists, quote, a short, sharp war, as Tony Blair was sure it would be, has become one of the longest in American history. But the war makers have blunted that recognition by breaking down the war into stages, the fall of Baghdad, the coalition provisional authority, the insurgency, the election of the assembly, the sectarian war. In this way, the character of the war as a single failed attempt has eluded discovery. It has come to seem instead a many-featured entity, difficult to describe and impossible to judge, and to assist the impression of obscurity, two things are constantly pressed out of view, the killing of Iraqi civilians by the American soldiers and the destruction of Iraqi cities by American bombs and artillery. And of course, we've seen this this past week with this pseudo-conflict between Maliki and Sadr right. uh, in Basra, an area, by the way, that the British turned over to the Iraqis in less than a year. Uh, they had 40,000 troops in the Basra area throughout most of 2003, and they reduced that number down to about 10,000 uh, in the spring of 2004 and are abandoning it altogether. Well, this area, of course, is... Predominantly Shia. Yeah, and it's not under control by anybody, but it's, it's troubling when you begin reading about the fact that America is, was using air bombardments uh, this past week to assist the Maliki government, to bolster the Maliki government. And this whole disaster is beginning to resemble the delusions, the self-lying, <laughs> uh, the, self the delusional thinking that went on in South Vietnam in terms Very of how the so. American government supported Diem, yep. despite the fact that he had no popular support in South Vietnam. We kept propping up this puppet uh, with eventually disastrous results. And I would suggest that the Maliki DM analogy is very um, apropos. Maliki issues a deadline that he then, <laughs> oh, okay, well, we'll make it, uh, you, you got to tell April 8th now. <laughs> and then he waits for Sauter to call for the ceasefire. And, of course, nobody won anything. But it's obviously a public relations game. And, of course, when good old Dick Cheney, oh, I don't have that quote with me, unfortunately. Um, I'll have to bring it in next week. It's just the most amazing thing. Oh, Dick Cheney, here it is. Opined during a surprise visit uh, to the Middle East on the 17th of March, as he toured Baghdad, bragging of, quote, phenomenal security improvements as a bomb went off in a heavily guarded Shiite holy city of Karbala, killing 50, 
Dick Cheney, when asked uh, to, to describe the situation, says, quote, it's been difficult, challenging, but nonetheless a successful endeavor, unquote. Unbelievable. Well, the green zone itself was bombed last yeah. week. M numerous times. Yeah. So uh, challenging indeed. Challenging. And the notion that it's been a successful endeavor is remarkable self-delusion and a euphemism of the profoundest mental illness. Indeed. Uh, of course, listeners uh, may recall that uh, the Secretary of Defense once upon a time was called the Secretary of War, and it switched to defense really at about the time that our policies became more offensive than ever before. Sure. And it's not really about defense. Um, yeah, as, nor as has the entire been. national security uh, apparatus of the American government was created in the late 40s, uh, while you have these true warmongers on the one, you know, that are part of the Pentagon and the whole uh, military-industrial complex, if you will, simultaneously colluding with the demented J. Edgar Hoover mm -hmm. and the so-called anti-communism crusade that has propaganda and... Uh, euphemism <laughs> I love that word um, all over it in fact I saw an amazing movie just a couple of weeks ago on Turner Movie Classic called Walk a Crooked Mile that I found out was dis released in uh, September of 1948 shortly before the presidential elections and of course was a, uh, a, a almost a premonition of the espionage atomic trials that eventually mm. occurred uh, in the United States of America with you know so-called radical extremists right, and totalitarians behind uh, what was about to happen. Of course, it was coinciding with the Alger Hiss case yep. and all of the propaganda that was utilized by the uh, good, grand old Republican Party uh, to hopefully win that election. But, of course, it didn't work out because Dewey uh, turned out not to be a very great political figure, but more like, as the joke, as the joke said, uh, the man that appears on top of the wedding cake. <laughs> well, we're just about out of time. Jerry Mack is here. Yazoo City Calling will be coming up next. Uh, thanks to Andrew King for engineering for us tonight. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit next week about this. It's too bad we're out of time because the segue would have been perfect here to talk a little bit about Upton Sinclair's Oil, which is, of course, the basis for the excellent film, uh, There Will Be Blood. Uh, it's returned to the dollar theater. So mm -hmm. if you haven't seen it yet, can't recommend this film strongly enough. I think it's the best American film in the last 10 to 15 years. Just finished the book, and uh, ah, I'll need more than a minute to, uh, to say my piece about Oil. But it was out of print for a long time, and it's now back in print, and I really encourage listeners to uh, to read this book it's uh way more in detail than the film as great as the film is this book functions as a sort of a good social history of the early american 20th century indeed and upton sinclair of course uh, most famously known for the jungle uh that led to uh the creation uh, literally of the fda and yep. the agricultural the usda and, and food think, inspection this is a better book than The Jungle, Indeed. as far as a read. So, well, More on that next week. More on that next week, and uh, Jerry Mack is uh, up and raring to go with Yazoo City Calling, so do stay tuned. He's uh, got the down-home blues for, a for your listening pleasure uh, right here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor.